Welcome to episode three of Find Your Light, the podcast that helps women in theater take center stage in lives they love. I'm your host and backstage stretcher extraordinaire, Emily Stamets. I'm going to keep my thoughts brief today because the interview that I've got for you was just too good to cut down any further and it's already over an hour long and your time is super valuable. So the conversation you're about to hear has me thinking about identity, about the layers of identity that we all have, and about what it means to live in alignment with who we truly are. Some folks would use the word authenticity here, but I find the word alignment to be much more actionable. I can think of it like a show. There's a script or not. There's a director or a collaborative collective with a vision, a story to tell, a message to transmit. In the best shows, everything is aligned with that vision, the story, and the message. Your life is the same, but in this case, you are the creator, the director, the visionary. But I can hear you thinking, how do I know who I really am? How can I live in alignment while I'm still figuring out my vision? Valid question, friend. Here's my answer. Eat pizza in your pajamas. Allow me to expound, please. Last night, after a long day of house renovations, my spouse and I decided to have pizza for dinner. He still had errands to run, and he suggested that we go to a great pizza place on the way. I, on the other hand, was already in my pajamas. Now, I was about to turn around and put on jeans and a bra, side note, barf, right, uh, when I took stock. What... Emily, do you actually want right now? And my answer was, I wanted to stay in my pajamas. I wanted to knit for a little bit, and I wanted to eat pizza while re-watching Game of Thrones. Now, the power in this has nothing to do with pizza or pajamas, although both were fabulous. But the power was in the habit I'm creating of asking me what I actually want. It's in the asking that I discover more and more about who I am and what I actually like. Over time, by asking yourself what you actually want in even the simplest situations, you can piece together a more clear picture of who you are, what you like, and what feels aligned for you. If you can't start from the grand vision and work down to the details, it's okay to start with the details, the simpler decisions, and build the grand vision from there. Okay, now before you listen any further, please note that there is a content warning on this episode for incest and child sexual abuse. We don't go into details, but Carolyn does mention that she is a survivor in the context of sharing about her work. The word rape is also used in a metaphorical way, not um, referring to an actual literal rape. Okay, my guest on this episode is the incredible Carolyn Gage. (laughs) Carolyn, I'm like giddy about this. Carolyn is a playwright, performer, director, and activist. She's the author of three books on lesbian theater and 75 plays, musicals, and one-woman shows. She specializes in non-traditional roles for women, especially those reclaiming famous lesbians whose stories have been distorted or erased from history. She also specializes in plays about survivors of sexual violence. The thing I think she's best known for is the show, the one woman show that she toured with for over 20 years, The Second Coming of Joan of Arc. 
So Carolyn and I hit it off right away and we dove straight into some great conversation. You come into this conversation sort of in media rest because that's sort of how we actually started. We didn't actually do like an introduction or any sort of warm up. We just dove right into talking about good stuff. Okay, here we go. I think this project that you're doing is really critically important. You know, um, well, women have a great deal of difficulty giving ourselves permission to be artists. It seems very selfish. Um, and, uh, And if you are an artist, and I think it's something you're born with, and you don't make it a priority, you will just have all kinds of mental and physical problems. I mean, you can't just decide well, I'm just not going to breathe oxygen today because that's, you know, going to slow me down. It's like you, you, and I think really, it seems like you're giving people permission. Thank you. And, you know, so many women, and well, one of the little stories I was going to tell, I mean, permission is really important. And I think that this subject is, is, I mean, and the worst thing, many things are happening on our planet, but the colonization of our imaginations is mm. it's like you know there's enough of us to change this shit yeah. it's yeah. the colonization of the imagination i just you know i can't imagine anything you know that's what i love about this uh, alexandria uh ocasio cortez yes she's just <laughs> like well this doesn't make sense let's change it it's like where did you ever get that idea from yeah. you know like i just feel like her imagination is not colonized she yes. has an idea it's like Let's go for it. And everybody else, that hasn't been done before. Or I think you're going to need to ask the men for some permission to do, you know, and I just, I just see that and I hope. Or you need to go back to school and get another degree before you can do that or whatever. Yes, exactly. I just find that um, women, especially artists and especially women in theater, because theater is such a beautiful 360 degree art form. We know how to design really beautiful lives, but we're not applying the skills we have in within the theater to the lives that we're living every day. And so I feel like my mission oh, is- Oh, oh, oh preach it, preach it. <laughs> oh yes, oh my God, yes, yes. It's like, um, um, I found that in a lot of my plays, and I started writing in 1986, um, uh, you know, that, it's like a shopping cart with a bad wheel. I was trying to write a very, you know, not just centering women, but centering lesbians. And that's a whole other thing in patriarchy because we give other women priority in, you know, our domestic and our sexual life is with women. And that is, ab- you know, that is not split. So I would try and center myself, my community in the narrative. And I would just, oh, let me get rid of this email thing. I just uh, found that what was happening was that um, uh, it like the bad wheel that it, I just kept steering into traditional heteropatriarchal narrative forms and I would just have to kind of wrench it back and um, I remember I was doing a play about Esther and Vashti which is a biblical subject and and I was, you know, I mean, I think of the play Job or Joseph and the whatever, God's Spot. That's time that, you know, a lesbian feminist take the Bible and, and yeah. do some. <laughs> and run with it. <laughs> I had the hardest time. Uh, I know all about, you know, you have these courageous women and they end up martyred, mm-hmm. you know, or uh, whatever. Hide. I, I, I honestly 
I found I was almost incapable of getting this thing to a positive women on top ending because um, I just had such entrenched ideas of the you're outnumbered. It's men for God's sake. They'll stop at nothing, blah, blah. And I just, I just remember I had to really work because I'd never seen any narrative anywhere that did what I needed that third act to do in Esther and Vashti. Mm -hmm. And um, I ended up with a narrative that was very radical and that turns into a communal healing of women who are survivors of war. I'm talking about the war of men against women, inviting members of the audience up on stage and it seamlessly morphs into a community healing about female survivors of male sexual violence. Um, that's within, the, it's not like, you know, hair where the play falls apart and everybody comes up, takes their clothes off and dances. And say, it stays in the play. Mm -hmm. You're coming into the biblical narrative mm -hmm. and rewriting the whole thing. But I mean, that was so hard for me because my coloniz my, the, my imagination was colonized. I yeah. kept running into walls. Oh, you can't say that. Or how would that happen? Or could women do that? I was like, oh, you know, you know, yeah. so. Um, well, so many of us are. I kind of, the, the metaphor that's coming to my mind is that we're born with, I believe that we're born with the, with the work that we should be doing in our DNA. I think that we are born with many yes. possibilities and we start yes. to choose one of them and we do it and that's, and that's how we're born. But we're born um, open other than that. And then as we grow up and as we move through socialization, we get these stories carved into our bones until there's there's very little room left for a new story or those are just the stories that we believe in and then we continue to retell. Um, and so I think what you're doing is not only incredibly difficult, but also very brave and so important and so powerful because we need those new stories. We need new stories carved into our bones so we can continue to recreate the world, right? Cause our stories that we tell are the reality that we have. So thank you. For your work. <laughs> that was a long oh, way of saying that, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let me jump into, um, I actually have, there were two things that you said in the video I was watching of you that's on YouTube. Um, there were a couple things that you said that I was like, oh, this is amazing. So I wanted to first talk about, and you, you said this was a thing from 20 years ago, which is amazing, but I'm going to pull it back up. And if it doesn't still feel true, let me know. Um, but if it does, I want to, I just want to. Well, I actually, I wrote the play in 86. <clears throat> so it's 33 years old. Amazing. But, uh, and then about around 90, I think I started touring in it and I toured until about five years ago. I think when I was 55 or almost 60 and I was still playing a 19 year old, it was like, you know what? <laughs> So what is the complete title of the play for listeners who aren't familiar? It's The Second Coming of Joan of Arc. And I actually, it started out, it was very radical. It was 86. I was doing it in church basements and people's living rooms. And, you know, it was underground, you know, the freedom fighting women up in the hills type of thing. I got an off-Broadway, not off-off, but an off-Broadway offer this year on this play. It's over 30 years old. And I thought, Wow. You know, it's just because, you know, just that it would go mainstream. If somebody had said in 86, this is going to go off Broadway, I would be like, 
oh, no, the men will never allow that. But, <laughs> but my producer, he said, he said, the Me Too movement. Yeah. That's the watershed. It's yeah. like, um, it's not that women hadn't been raped and weren't angry. They just hadn't given each other permission to have a movement around it. And now it's a mainstream play. So absolutely. So let me pull out. So let me set the scene really quickly. This video, which I highly recommend people check out. It's on YouTube. The title is Engaged, which is your last name. <laughs> um, and it's you and you're, you're spreading mud or like dirt on your face and on your body. You're in uh, what is clearly just a public restroom. There's like stalls behind you <laughs> and you're just riffing on your thoughts. And one of the things you said, and I, I hope I get this quote correctly, you say, many women are suffering terribly because they don't know their artists and they don't know their artists because they don't know their lesbians. So I, what comes up for me with that is, I mean, there's so much there. There's so much identity there. There's so much power there. There's so many layers there. And I was wondering if you can talk just a little bit about what it was like to peel back those layers to find the artist that you are inside because you have an incredible story well it's a little bit of a different story than younger people because i was born in 52 and i never saw a lesbian and i might have vaguely known what they were kind of in dark alleys with leather jackets but i you know it just i never had curiosity about it they were characters in an underworld and i was a middle-class kid um really until you know the 70s and by then i was kind of in young adulthood mm -hmm. so that's a very different thing um and i um in my story i was about 33 and i think i was going to be a teacher or something um i didn't know i was an artist and i began to have um memories of child sexual abuse mm -hmm. and i am some people you know are aware all along and uh, I apparently was just filing it in the amnesia file, like I'll deal with this later or maybe never. And, um, and I was very focused on surviving. So I got married at 19 to a very nice man. And I, you know, it was like, look, I can, I'm rocking it. I'm being normal. Look, normal. I'm so, I'm going to live. And, and that's kind of exciting through your 20s. But if you're a survivor of child um, sexual abuse or adverse childhood experiences, that thing that kind of got you out of the home starts to break down around your late 20s and early 30s. It's kind of like a rocket stage. I got out of the orbital of the perpetrators. Mm -hmm. and, but then that stage of the rocket falls away. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, the A student, and what is a normal person supposed to do? Watch me, I'm gonna go out and do it. Cause I had acting chops. It's like, oh, I can do this. Um, and I and it became the next survival question is yeah but who am I all right I get it I get it I'm alive I'm here I know how to get a job I know how to you know and that isn't good enough anymore I need to I want my own life but I got to figure who I am so I got my memories and that just all hell broke loose I completely estranged from my family and and at the same time I let myself suddenly know what I felt about men's bodies which is ew and um, I could not let myself do that as long as I felt like I was going to have to be physically intimate with them as part of my survival, part of the look at me being normal thing. So when I, and I think, you know, I, I could only reclaim my history when I was strong enough to know I could live without men. Mm -hmm. All those pieces just come together, but suddenly it was time. 
let myself know what I know about men. So anyway, at 33, I get my memories. I know what I know I feel about men, and I realize I will never be intimate with another man again, ever. Um, and that kind of made me a lesbian. I didn't, my sexuality was extremely um, muted by then. I had never owned my own body or inhabited it. So to have desire for women, some people know they're lesbian at three. I just wanted whatever was normal. Um, you know, so for me realizing what I really felt and thought about things, it's kind of, it's kind of like going through adolescence at, in your, at 33. It wasn't pretty, let me tell you. It's not pretty at 16, but at 33, it's very odd. And, and also I realized I was an artist and then no matter what it cost me, that was going to be my primary activity for the rest of my life because suddenly I knew my story. I knew the community I was writing for, lesbians, feminists, and I also knew what my story was. It was a story of a survivor. And um, so all three of those threads could not, I couldn't have pulled any one without the other two. Couldn't have been an artist unless I knew I was a lesbian, a survivor. Couldn't have come out as lesbian until I really dealt with the survivor piece and the art was gonna see me through and give me my purpose. You know, they all happened at once. Um, and I think that, um, well, you asked me about, you know, the you don't know you're an artist until you can figure out you're a lesbian for a lot of women because they don't know you know when you you make art you have to have a vision of who you are and also your traditions and whatever so if you don't know what your community is if you're utterly colonized you're never going to be very good doing colonial art because it's not really yours mm. uh, the colonizers make great colonial art because that's what they do but you know and I think that a lot of women um, don't know they're lesbians because they don't know their histories. I, I don't think I'm unique in misremembering or forgetting altogether my childhood. I think that's so true. The brain is a marvelous thing. And if you're really small and it's a really frightening situation, it will just take care of that. I was editing my life as it rolled. Okay, throw that out. That never happened. Oh, she didn't say that. I didn't see that, you know. Um, and uh, bless its little heart, it kept me alive, but then it also was gonna keep me from having an adult life because I didn't know who I was. Yeah, and you had mentioned, one of the reasons I was so excited to speak with you is you mentioned something when I made a Facebook post saying, I'm, I'm starting this podcast, I'm looking for people who wanna talk about what theater has done in their lives. And you're one of, I think at this point, you were the only person who's used this phrase, but I think this is a phrase that many, many people resonate with, which is, you said, theater saved your life. Oh, yeah. Oh, and I yeah. I think that that is maybe not a completely universal sentiment, but I hear that often. I work a lot with high school kids and high school oh, kids are, yes. oh, you know, yeah. they're, they're hyperbole is their thing but I think it's really true that theater it, and it continues life. to save my life it continues yeah, so talk about that well um I um I think it started very early I somebody said by the age five you pretty much have your mission your themes and um so for me uh when I was very small I took to dolls and I don't get me on a soapbox about people who think that dolls are anti-feminist. Oh my God, I had a collection of 50 and I had a dollhouse my cousins had built for me that was about four feet high, you know, these were big dolls. 
And I would script these BBC miniseries. It was a castle. I mean, the relationships between these characters and the servants had as much status as the royalty, everybody. And there's lots of people having sex, of course, because, you know, I'm precocious. <laughs> sexual abuse. I mean, there's, but intense romance and people going off and rescues and all this. And I would enter the world of the dolls every day, dissociate and stay intently and intensely in that world. Mm. Um, and it was to such a degree that the outside world was secondary to me. It was unreal. That was the unreal world. These sort of monster, you know, those old Japanese monster films where they sort of superimpose people running and then these ridiculous <laughs> King Kong that's what my parents looked like. They were gigantic and monstrous and unreal, kind of lumbering across my landscape. But my world was the dolls. Mm -hmm. And in the doll world, um, evil was punished and good people prevailed. In my family of birth, the perpetrator won everything all the time. He was a, a man of tremendous wealth and resources and the community thought he was God. He was a wife beater, a perpetrator. He, you know, he was, he was depraved. So the dollhouse world kept me ethical and sane because there was a place I could go where things worked out the way they should. Um, and it was a matriarchate. There was no God the Father, no Pope, no judge, no head of the family. Um, Queen Ginny was wonderful. She was this little white blonde goddess, you know, but um, it was the world I needed to live in. It was the world that made sense to me. It was a world where I could be moral and upright because growing up in my family, I would be Donald Trump today if I took in the lessons of that. Like it's dog eat dog, so get on it before they get you. Mm -hmm. So this was a beautiful world and it was, um, and I was scripting, I was playwriting and not really even realizing this is actually theater that I'm doing. Um, so I believe it saved my, me in childhood. I compare myself to my brother who's perpetrator identified um, today and I have nothing to do with him. Mm -hmm. We were both victimized, in, but he was not able, he was, uh, had learning disabilities. He couldn't escape into the world of imagination. And I feel like that his options were awful, both of ours were, but he didn't have the escape hatch. I went into another dimension for eight to 10 hours a day he lived in hell and he, he, did, he did become a perpetrator uh, identified person because mm -hmm. that was the lessons of that world. So I feel like it saved my life. And I think then I came out as a lesbian in a world that was completely hostile and still is to lesbians. Mm -hmm. And so I use those same skill set. I wrote theater for an audience that didn't exist. You know, I have a lesbian opera. I have <laughs> <laughs> that didn't exist, they're starting to come into being, but um, that kept me uh, front and center with my community in a world that would make me see myself as marginalized, um, even in my own eyes, the yeah. low self-esteem that a marginalized person can really upload. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, saved my life. It's fantastic. Thank you for sharing so openly too about your experience and your just everything you've gone through, it is, I mean, you know, the value of hearing our own stories for people who haven't yet been able to listen to the story inside themselves. When we can see someone else talking about it, there's so much healing and so much power in that. So thank you for doing that um, for yourself, of course, but also for everyone else who needs that story. I think we've been talking a little bit about 
women giving ourselves permission. And I find a lot of women holding their stories inside and not giving themselves permission to share, of course, because we do face huge repercussions for living the stories that many of us have lived, but also because we are worried that our story isn't real enough or it isn't good enough or it's too real or too hard or so important that when one person can tell her story, it opens up the avenue for 15 other women to tell their story as well. Well, I came out as a lesbian in the 80s, and in the mid-80s, there was the movement of incest survivors. Mm -hmm. There was a huge backlash within five years where these powerful male perpetrators began to file lawsuits against their daughter's therapists for libel or planting whatever, the false memory syndrome thing. and uh, and then publishers were getting sued, so they would you could look in the uh, writers' resource books, and the publishers say what they're looking for: biography, autobiography, memoir, no incest memoirs. Oof. They started to literally say that, wow. which indicates they were getting a lot of them, um, but also that their legal department was like, we don't want to deal with this. So. Um, but it was a short window and I'm so grateful because I don't know that I would have been able to retrieve my memories in the current culture. Maybe with me too, I could, but I was so grateful for that movement of incest survivors. It was really, um, that was really important for me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Let's dive into the standard questions. (laughs) Yeah. We've just been chatting and it's such a fantastic And you have notes. Oh, I'm so excited. So how did you get started in the theater? You talked already about the dollhouse, the make-believe, the dollhouse. Um, but take us through the journey of how you actually got yourself into a place that has a stage and an audience. Well, I, in 1970, I started college and I was at William and Mary and the head of the department um, started asking me to go out with him. And I didn't know, I didn't remember my incest. But of course, that triggered enormous PTSD that I had no understanding. I just assumed the situation was as dangerous as I was registering. Mm-hmm. Um, and I ended up um, dropping out of college for 10 years. Uh, and that's why when people, you know, like they, they treat harassment like it's, um, it's minor, but when you're getting some young adult away from home for the first time, and her history is one of child sexual abuse, you know, you don't have to say a whole lot. I mean, he didn't put his hand on my leg. He was asking me to go out on dates. That's what he was asking. Mm-hmm. But I knew from that moment on, I wasn't going to have a normal student's experience in that department for the next four years. So I dropped out and I just did other things. Um, and I also was, um, a little bit gender dysphoric and what I did in those 10 years, I just kind of dressed like a man. I hitchhiked around the country a lot. I was kind of that first wave of the women's movement. I learned how to tune up a car and I built a house with a chainsaw and I needed to kind of um, break out of the Southern Belle thing that I'd been raised with. Uh, And I went back to school when I was 30 and I went back to theater in theater and by then, I didn't feel like calling my professors, yes, sir, and, you know, no, ma'am. And, you know, I mean, I was an adult. I'd had an adult life. uh, And I'd had a belly full of what men are about. If you, uh, I love it when people are like, there's really no difference between men and women. I'm like, really? Have you ever hitchhiked 10,000 miles? Because I'll tell you the difference. And people say, what's the difference? I'm like, well, when a woman picked me up, I could go to sleep and back. 
I could tell them where I was going and I always accepted anything they wanted to give me to eat or to drink or whatever. If a man picked me up, I always lied about when I was getting off. Always. I never told them where I was going because I might need to get out sooner. Never fell asleep, not even sitting up, not even napping. I was always on red alert because God knows where you end up if you do that. And if they offered me anything, I never touched it. Money, food, drink, you know, it was like night and day. It's like, well, the difference, uh, one is an ally, the other is an enemy that easily can kill you. If there's, as if you're wearing a sign, you won't be accountable for anything you do to this person, which is when you're hitchhiking, that's the sign you're carrying. No one knows where I am or who I am, and you can do anything you want. And I always had weapons, of course, but, you know, so I, you know, I was kind of like, that's not that different from other women's experience in the work world or in the, with their husbands, but it's very stark if you're prostituted or you're hitchhiking. It's extremely clear. And women would introduce their feminist boyfriend to me. And you learn to read men fast when you travel like that. And I would meet their wonderful feminist husband. And it's like within two seconds, it's like, I wouldn't get in his car. Mm. In his car. I would show my knife in the opening two minutes. It's like, you know, I it was like, he may never be dangerous to her. And so she doesn't have to see it. Mm. But I, you know, I, I just, you see the world differently. So when I went back to school after that, at 30, I had a very good idea of who I was and what I wanted to do. And um, so I, you know, I, I got a bachelor's and a master's in theater. And then, and then I uh, was in a a big whistleblower lawsuit against the University of Oregon. And that opened my eyes to a whole lot of institutional stuff. Mm-hmm. And I just left. It's like, you know, I'm going to do nothing, but I'm not going to work with men ever again. And I am going to do, I'm just going to do the strongest story I know how to tell, the most dangerous story I know how to tell. And I knew that meant, well, then you're going to have to produce it probably perform in it and you're going to have to back the whole thing yourself and I was kind of like yep I can do that (laughs) and I when I my theater degree I did a lot of that I I did a lot of producing of my own work and I was acting directing and writing so I got out like a kind of jack of all trades it's like I can do all of that I can do that so that was I'm wondering because there I've I have talked to a lot of women about this exact thing where they say, I have the story that I'm ready to tell. I know the world needs to hear it. Um, and they're, they're just, they haven't quite made the leap to, I'm able to make it happen. I'm able to produce it myself. I'm able to perform it. Like if I have to, I will, can do anything. They still are waiting for that permission. So how did you take that step from going, I have the story into, I'll just be the one to make it happen. How did you well, I mean, a lot of things were, I mean, I was thrown out of my church. I estranged from my family. I, um, I was fired multiple times from the public schools because I was not willing to stay closeted. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was a teacher for 11 years and I'm just laughing because I'm deep in the public school system. I can see it yeah. all happening very quickly. You know, there's a certain point, I, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer, you know, was a, a freedom fighter in the South and they beat her. Um, she was jailed and beaten very badly. And, and she said something to the effect of like, well, they should have just killed me because, you know, it's like they did everything they could and I'm still here and sort of she's how dangerous she was. And I mm. couldn't stand in her shoes because, um, you know, I didn't have that experience, but 
I did feel like fired, evicted, excommunicated, disinherited. It's kind of like, I think honestly, I was fueled more by just kind of a wild, reckless anger. Mm-hmm. It was like, I kind of, um, I had one weapon and that was my truth. And it was like, well, you know, and like I say, I had amassed those skills while I was in graduate school. I wasn't conscious at the time I was going to be producing all my own work, but on some level, I must have known that. I wanted the control. I wanted to know how to do all of those things. And um, yeah, so I, I had been independently producing. I independently produced about four shows while I was in graduate school. So when I left, and then I got, I got hired, uh, I think I was hired by some community theaters and just to make money. Um, but then I only did that for like two years, I think. And then, and then it was like, okay, I changed my name. I was Carolyn Gage and it just, the whole thing started, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, okay. So give us a, a snapshot of what you're doing today. Today, I, three years ago, I moved onto an island, Mount Desert Island in Maine. I know, yay. That sounds and, like my dream come true. That's amazing. <laughs> well, I, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot that doesn't happen. There's a, I'm in a village of 2000. So um, I am semi-retired. I don't perform, direct, or produce anymore, but I am writing better than I've ever written. I'm writing quite a bit and loving it. Um, so that's what I'm doing. And I do a little bit of lecturing and I do occasionally, I will workshop a play because it's sort of the last stage of writing. But I do feel that disconnect. I used to live down in Portland where I was just a, Boston was two hours away. New York was a 45 minute plane. You know, I am up in Maine. Leaving the island is a big production. You know, it's just touring. I knew when I moved here, it was a commitment to not tour anymore because it's very hard to get off the island. um, But I'm touring for over 20 years. Oh yeah, I did. Yeah, I toured a lot. I did a lot of different things when I toured. Um, pretty much anybody who wanted me somewhere and was willing to pay for it, I would go. Um, <laughs> partly because, you know, I had forfeited a teaching career. And, you know, so anytime I could teach or perform, I would go. But that's what I'm doing now. Beautiful. So what do you think is making your writing so much better today? focus. I mean, I am not touring. Touring is kind of a distraction. You have to get it together. And the Joan of Arc piece was 90 minutes. So I would start re-memorizing it 10 days out. And then, you know, it's very intense and you really can't think of anything right before you do it. And then, and then you're out and traveling and then you have to come back and decompress and there's 5,000 emails and all this stuff is, you know, it just, um, and I'm not touring anymore. Is it's very focused. I have just I get up and I have weeks of nothing ahead of me mm. except writing schedule, and so that's been wonderful. Do yeah. you write every day? Pretty much, yeah. I have like the one that's on deck, and mm. that's it's red hot right now. And then I have one that's usually in a kind of lesser stage in the background. And then I have ones that are just existing in my imagination. There's a batting order, you know, and I can see them moving up as I finish one project and come into the next. So I always have a lot of them going on. Um, it's How like do you a- keep yourself, and I'm using air quotes here, motivated? <laughs> How do you keep yourself motivated to continue writing even though you're semi-retired? 
I think that, uh, you know, I censored myself for 30 years. I see my entire culture censored all around me. I think I get such a rush of endorphins to get that thing out. Mm. I think it's in the, um, the something or other gospels. They're not the regular gospels, the ones that the Dead Sea Scrolls. But they're the saying, if, if you take that which is in you and you put it out, it will save your life. If you keep it in, it will destroy it. That is graphic. I, the gospels of something or the something anyway i wish i could remember what they were i'm not we'll look it up <laughs> we'll add it to the show notes for podcast listeners it, it's a, it's a fabulous quotation and um it's really true and when you get to be 67 you see the people destroyed especially the incest survivors that didn't get the story out it will just destroy you and so Anyway, so that keeps me going because I'm always telling a radical story and I have a, you know, I'm just going to get such relief if I can get it out. Um, yeah, it's like a survival instinct in a way. Yes. Yeah. No, there's a tremendous incentive. And then given that my work, I knew when I started, it might never be produced in my lifetime because it was all not just lesbian centric, but survivor centric and often lesbian butch centric. And I'm like, well, you're probably never going to see it produced. So it had to satisfy me thoroughly just to get it out in the best possible form. That had to be the reward. Because if I was all like, oh, no, nobody's buying it. I'm going to kill myself. It's like, well, that's going to be the world's shortest career. So, um, yeah, but I do get a lot of reward just from getting it out. And that keeps me going. But I have very good discipline, too. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, I feel like I'm so fortunate that I, I recovered my memories and that I'm still alive. And I feel, I really actually literally feel the pressure of all the women who died before me in eras when there was no women's movement, no lesbian movement, died at their own hand or thought they made up the incest or went crazy. Uh, I feel I have... I had a good education. I have the chops to tell that story and tell it well and powerfully. And I feel a real mandate to do that. It's like I got out and I need to tell the world about the ones that didn't. Um, you know, I really feel a certain survivor guilt, I guess, around it. That, that really fuels me a huge amount. Yeah. For sure. Tell us about a vivid memory that you have of the theater? I was gonna, I, I was gonna phrase this question, like your most impactful memory, but I think that like, if there's a memory that's really vivid for you, we wanna hear it. And it I'm gonna tell you, it's, interesting. it's a theater memory from the theater career, but it actually is a radio memory. Oh. And um, I was on, um, to the best of our knowledge, which is an NPR, no, Public Radio International's PRI show kind of like um, all things considered. So I was on the best of our knowledge and they were asking me about the second coming of Joan of Arc. So I talked a little bit about it and then I did a 15 minute excerpt or something from it on the radio performing it. So I get this email from this woman and she said, well, I was driving in my car when that program came on and she just was really wanting to hear it. But she said, I had just pulled into my driveway and my three-year-old was next to me and she was getting fussy. So I took her out of the car and was walking her up and down the driveway and I turned the radio way up so I could keep hearing, you know, the broadcast. Mm -hmm. 
And um, she said, I was a little nervous because you kept saying the word lesbian and I had turned it way up and I was worried about what the neighbors were gonna think, you know. So here's this woman walking up and down with her three-year-old who's fussing and she's trying to catch this whole broadcast. And, um, and then she said, and then um, the show was over and I put my daughter back in the car and we drove to another state. And she left her husband and came out as a lesbian. So in the course of my 30 minute interview, she went from what will the neighbors think? That woman, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not that powerful. She was at a tipping point. She didn't need a whole lot, but she needed something. And that something was in my play. And it was enough. Wow. I love that. That is something. Uh, so I work primarily as a life coach and I have all of these message, messages in my brain and I sometimes find it difficult or intimidating or whatever, the permission, there's all sorts of things going into it to share the thought that I have today, to share the message, to you know, put out the inspiration. And the thing that drives me often is kind of that same idea of there's one person out there. There's one person who needs to hear something today. There's one person who needs, you know, one molecule of light. Light doesn't come in molecules, but you know what I mean. Um, so that often I find can be the driving force for me. And I love that your vivid memory is of just having well, and in the context, one person. Four million people heard that broadcast. So I sat back and waited for all the, you know, the massive man. <laughs> was going to be made because I knew it was a good broadcast and I thought well I'm just going to get so many production off my life will change it'll be pre-PRI and post that didn't happen the silence was deafening and I thought I must be completely delusional I must think that I'm doing something important and I'm not but that email came in and there's a connection between the fact this woman's entire life changed from that 30-minute interview and the fact that 3,999,000, et cetera, people didn't have any response to it at all. And I thought they couldn't hear it. They turned it off. They couldn't hear it. They forgot it. This, as they were hearing it, they were editing it out that, you know, um, because that woman, that woman validated for me, yes, I am doing what I think I'm doing and I'm doing it well. And what happened to the other three million whatever that you know I'd never heard from is of course mm -hmm. of course they had of course the silence is deafening you know it's too dangerous it's ahead of its time it's expensive to listen to my plays it's expensive it might cost you your job your husband your comfortable income your sexual orientation um so to me, it was a very precious email because I loved her story, but also it explained why that wasn't this huge moment where I was discovered by the world. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. there's probably also, she, she's probably the one vocal person out of many who were impacted, who just didn't feel the desire or the whatever, yeah. or the permission to reach out and actually talk to you about it. Yeah. Um, she was at the tipping point, but there may have been someone who was just ready for the seed to be planted and it won't be for years and years until they're at that point, you know? <laughs> All right. What is the most important lesson that you have learned from your work? I wrote it down. Um, <laughs> and it actually is a quotation that the lesbian actor Ava Legallien had written in one of her journals and I had run across it earlier. It's from Charlotte Cushman, who is a big, fat, lesbian, butch 
performer in the 19th century. She was the most popular actress um, in the English speaking world, that's two continents, for 40 years, which is amazing longevity for a woman in theater. Mm -hmm. She was a powerhouse, but she got written out of history because she was very public with her relationships with women. Oh. And she was fat and she was butch and she uh, made a lot of her greatest roles were playing men's roles. So whoever wow. writes theater history was kind of like, mm, let's talk about Sarah Bernhardt and yeah. Eleanor Duza and you know, women who had lots of boyfriends and things. But this is what she said. She said, art is an absolute mistress. She will not be coquetted with or slighted. She requires the most entire self-devotion and she repays with grand triumphs. And that's really what you have to remember. If you are an artist, you will serve your art. You know, it will not serve you. It's not a hobby. You will serve your art. It will take you places that were the last place you ever wanted to go. It will cost you everything. Usually there's a lot of financial sacrifice involved. And then and it demands that. And if you try to fool around with it or be half-assed or make concessions for the sake of box office, you will pay more than you can ever know. That's, it's, mm -hmm. it's like the sorcerer's apprentice. It's a sacred art. It always was. And, you know, I don't know why we treat it as profane. And you can pretend it's not a sacred art, but I'm telling you, you will pay for it. Just like Mickey Mouse and the sorcerer's apprentice. You are dealing with magic. Yeah. You don't know what you're doing. You better do what it tells you because you're going to be in trouble. So you know? how do you do that? How do you listen and like do the right thing? I'm using air quotes again. How do you do the right thing in the face of that? Power? I, think you keep, I think you keep the channel open all the time. Um, and it's just like when you are writing a scene and you, you kind of have an idea where you want it to go. And so you kind of made the character say something that they wouldn't say. Hmm. And you go back and you look at it like, it's, or it wakes you up in the middle of the night like, no, you know. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but it isn't that, you know? It's like when some famous sculptor said, it's very easy, you just chip away anything that isn't the statue. Mm -hmm. They can't really tell you what it is, but they know what it isn't. And I know that scene isn't working. I'm not sure what it needs, but I know it's not working, so I'm not stopping. I'm gonna keep listening. I'll try this, that doesn't work either. All right, I, knowing what doesn't work is really kind of the key to the whole thing. But the second part of it's important, she repays with grand triumphs. Yeah. They may seem delayed. My grand triumphs have been quiet. My grand triumph was that little email I just mm -hmm. told you about, you know. Um, you know, I think you need to have the faith that serving art, there's days where it's like, what? This is just an abusive relationship. That's all this is. But it's not. You're building character. You're, 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 I think as you practice your art at the highest level, you meet more and more wonderful people. You know, the air gets kind of rarefied. There are not so many of you around, but the ones that are still up there at that altitude are master climbers. That is an awesome thing. Yeah. Um, it, it, it really does. It is an absolute mistress, but it repays munificently, as Eva Legallian would say. So you have to remember both those things at the same time. Mm -hmm. But yeah, if you don't think you're there to serve... Um, be be a do something do something else i don't know write <laughs> yeah it's it's one of those or things where it's... design corporate logos and write for movies <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I think of it um, in a similar way to how I used to think of teaching, which is that it's just, it's too hard to do unless it's the only thing you can yes. do. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, people are like, do you think I should make it? It's like, if you can do anything other than theater, for God's sake, do it. Do it. You will end up, when, it get, when the going gets tough, you will end up doing it. Yep. So um, I, uh, you know, I burned a lot of bridges uh, with the incest thing, but then being an out lesbian in the 80s, it was like, well, there go all the rest of the bridges and I didn't even have to light the match. So <laughs> I mean, I, I, but, and at the time it was terrifying, but now it's like, that was the only thing left and I'm grateful now. But at the time it was like, ah, oh, I don't have any, fault. there's no plan B. But my experience with artists is um, you make a good plan B because you're going to have to use it. But if you don't have one at all, you will, um, you might actually learn how to fly. It's like, mm, yeah. Oh, that's so powerful. Yeah. Well, I'm telling you, plan B, plan, plan B can be very dangerous. Um, yeah. Most of the people I know had a plan B or live in plan B now. Yeah. Yeah. So, whew. I mean, I, women need to feel safe and secure and they need to have a not crazy ass plan or they'll end up destitute or whatever. Um, but I do think we're, we're tribal people and that when you are called to be an artist, if we were tribal, you would have, be a shaman and people would understand they needed to leave yeah. pots of yams at your tent door. We don't I want people that. to leave me pots of yams. That sounds great. <laughs> we don't recognize the sacred. We don't recognize that's a calling. That's hard work. That's harder as hard as tilling the field. It's sort of like, well, you do that on the side, but the rest of us have to go hunting. So you have to go hunting too. It's kind of like, actually, when you're called to be shamanistic, that's the work. Mm -hmm. And uh, an evolved culture will support it and recognize the whole tribe needs someone who can devote themselves to that because you're giving us the narratives that help us keep going. Yeah. Um, this whole commercialization of art is terrible because it gives you narratives that don't, that are soul sucking instead of... Um, yeah so but it's a calling for sure yeah so what are some skills or habits of mind that have been most valuable to you as an artist or craftsperson you're both you do you got your fingers in a little bit of everything <laughs> i say do, do a little art every day yes if it's, even if it's bad and even if it's 10 minutes do a little art every day mm -hmm. and this is critical really critical finish everything you start and if halfway through you realize it's a piece of shit or that you have badly misconceived it, that, that the premise of it doesn't hold up, make yourself finish it. You will learn so much doing that. And, and, and secondly, you'll never do that again. You know, <laughs> so like, if you realize your foundation sucks, you make yourself build the rest of the house. You will never, ever have a foundation like that again. You'll be like, oh God, no, never again. I felt like that was critical. I finished everything I started. And it makes you think hard when you start a project. All right, mm -hmm. this is about a two-year project. I know that I'm gonna make myself finish it. Do I wanna, can I live with this for two years? Is, it, is this a robust enough idea for me to follow through on? Um, that, I, it, that was magic. I heard that from a television screenwriter uh, way back in uh, around 1980. And I never forgot it. And I have made myself finish projects that were really bad. Um, and you do, you learn a lot. Otherwise, you get up to a hurdle and just, oh, do something. You never clear that hurdle. Um, you learn so much from the mistakes. I have never heard 
that stated in that way before. I've never heard that advice, but it makes so much sense to just keep going and finish, even if the end product is terrible, even if you know, like you said, halfway through that it's going to be terrible because it, the lesson of it is so valuable. I've never, that is like a really beautiful mind blowing idea for me right now. Cause I've never heard that. <laughs> no one's ever yeah, talked I about mean, finishing I that. Feel like that um, these projects will release you. Mm. You'll feel it. You know, it's like it, you, it, you get released from it, but it's sort of like, it's like showing up for a job, you know, you've got this news uh, or whatever that you're in relationship with it. I always feel like my projects are handed to me. Like this mm -hmm. is what you're going to write about. And you just show up faithfully. And one day they're kind of like, okay, you know what? You can go home now. Mm -hmm. You know, it, you know that it releases you, but you keep showing up for it. I think that's true with everything in life, even relationships. Um, hopefully if they're abusive you realize i'm released from this whatever it was i'm released from it like immediately this is the, they, they did that it's like oh there it goes i'm out um but i you know you're in relationship you're in a contractual relationship spiritually with everything around you so i do feel like going through life with this sort of self-will driven i don't feel like doing this anymore like oh this isn't any fun i don't know i i think it's better to wait for the sense of release on the contract um I've done everything that I can here now. I think I'm done. Um, yeah, that's everything I've got for this. Yeah. If nothing else, what an immensely more fulfilling way to move forward. Because then you move through your life knowing I did as much as I could on this and this and this and not I stopped, yeah. right? Or I yeah. walked away. Well, and that can become addictive. And uh, I, I did that earlier because I always watched my mother and I thought, boy, when I'm an adult, I'm just gonna, the power of walking away. Yeah. And I, you know, those 10 years of living out of a backpack, because you said something I didn't like, oh, I'm just gonna get my backpack and I'm on the freeway and you're never gonna hear from me again. That was so liberating, but it became addictive. And um, I actually had to work to stop doing that um, and to realize uh, you have more business here. You've got options here. You've got power in this situation. Uh, getting your feelings hurt and being violated are actually completely different things, you know? Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. You hurt my feelings, I'm gone. It's like, no, now I confront. We work with this. What, you know, I mean, just so many things about that. So maybe for women on another path, pulling the plug is their spiritual discipline. But for me, that one I overdid. So the sticking with it until it releases you is is um is kind of what i'm my spiritual path is now mm -hmm. give my best and but how would you um how do you know when it's releasing you what would you say to someone who's just starting out on an artistic journey about how she could know that it's time? you finish it you finish it okay does that doesn't mean it goes to broadway <laughs> It means it has a second or third act. If it's a two or a three act play, you finish it. You don't like write the first act and say, oh, I can imagine the second and it sucks. I'm done. <laughs> and also making yourself do that, what it does is it disables the inner critic. Because I'll get up and I'll be, uh, I can see this one act is awful and I'm writing about a subject I don't know enough about, you know, and blah, blah, blah. But it becomes irrelevant. It's like, well, yeah, I hear that, but you do know you have to finish it because that's our deal. And then you finish it, it's one of the best plays you ever wrote. Mm. 
So I think there's never been a play that I wasn't convinced was absolute garbage at some point. None of my plays. There's always a point where I'm like, okay, I'm, the veil has fallen from my eyes. My delusions of grandeur are gone. This is worthless. You write, you write through it. Like, nevertheless, I've got to finish it. <laughs> and then I'm like, yeah, that's an amazing play. So I think that that's a little tool to defang that critic. It's like, yeah, you're right. It is garbage. Now, let's get that second act done, you know. Yeah. And it, uh, it loses the ability to, to shatter your uh, self-confidence. Self-confidence becomes irrelevant. I'm oh my gosh, that's I, I am confident I will finish what I start. That's the only thing I'm confident about. Maybe a piece of shit, it may be a work of genius, but I am confident because this is who I am. I will finish it. Oh, yeah. That is, that in itself is incredibly liberating because then you're not, you don't have to be judging. You don't have to be critiquing as you move through the process. You just do. You get to just be the artist. Yeah, and if you're life coaching somebody who's like, you know, on that point of giving up and you're like, no, we'll try finishing everything. And she's just convinced about that, you know. Um, maybe she's right. It's worthless. And she spends another three weeks on it. It's just frustrating. And look, it was mediocre then. It still is. It's like, what are you going to do next time? Next time mm -hmm. she will she will spend a little more time vetting the original concept. Or I mean, you will come away with rewards for that. Mm -hmm. They may not be the ones that you thought, but um, no, that was like, I think the most powerful tool in my box was that to finish everything. Huge. Sorry. Thank you so much <laughs> for doing that. Okay, what is one thing that you do in your theatrical artistic work that if everyone applied that principle to their lives, they would have a better life? Uh, everyone, everyone needs to be faithful to their gifts. Mm. Way above wife, partner, husband, dog, puppy, baby, be faithful. You know, what you are given, if it's kindness, if it's love of animals, if it's you love to cook, you know, like everyone has their gifts. Take them seriously and be faithful to them. Don't disparage them. Don't starve them. Don't put them last place. Don't rank them below something someone else can do. Just be really faithful. Like, like really study up on what the word faithful means. Um, and I feel like that is just, then you're not going to be vicious and mean and petty and competitive and looking for the grass is greener. Um, that emptiness in your soul, uh, holding your, your uh, loved one back because you're competitive with them or living through your child so that they will live your dreams. You know, if you're faithful to your gifts, you're going to be able to be uh, a safe and accountable in your relationships. And that's really important. If you're not faithful to your gifts, you're going to need things that you don't want. And if you've ever partnered somebody who needed you, but didn't really want you, but they needed you, mm, it's a nightmare. Yes. Or I was engaged to that person. <laughs> or, or if you're not faithful to your gifts, you're going to want stuff that you don't need, like an addict. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, fill up the hole, fill up the hole. But you don't need any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Either one of those things will ruin your life. If you're faithful to your gifts, well, that's where if you're dating somebody, watch them. Are they faithful to their gifts? Because then they're not going to be. And that person who needs you desperately but doesn't really want you is very romantic, very 
don't don't be hard on yourself if you fall for it it's need is incredible it's oh my god i'm a goddess in their world uh-huh. they don't really want you but they just need you but i mean it's easy to be fooled by that but if you paid attention i bet if you thought about this person were they really um had they even recognized what their gifts were and were they faithful to it nope <laughs> bingo that, that is that's the biggest red flag bottle that up and like give it to everyone in the world that is such a incredibly powerful idea (laughs) you're just a font carolyn (laughs) i have suffered (laughs) and you're using that to to share light though you've turned it into beautiful learning and you're sharing it all the time which is not everyone does that not everyone takes their suffering and makes it useful well, thank you. I, I needed to hear that today. This is good. Well, there you go. There's my gift for you. <laughs> All right. Should theater be required less yes. curriculum? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I've been reading somewhere that, you know, if you watch little puppies, uh, they play fierce animal, mm-hmm. you know, or they attack the little piece of newspaper. Mm-hmm. Like they, animals play. I mean, like the, the impulse towards the dramatic is how we grow up. That's how the puppy learns to be a watchdog, you know, like that it's practicing for life. And, um, you know, we don't walk out in front of the audience with unrehearsed material unless we're suicidal or something. <laughs> but we go through life. We show up in life with unrehearsed material every freaking day and wonder why it didn't play well. Mm. You know, and I feel like, you know, theater is... Um, I think that it's, it keeps people civilized. It gives us an outlet for our rage. And I was, I taught briefly in the prisons, um, the theater program. Um, you know, we're all kind of imprisoned by our egos and, and the context of our lives and our age or what the world tells us about our sex, you know, women can do this and blah, blah. And I think um, that you know, theater, it gives you an escape. You can go away and be somebody else. And then when you come back, you're inhabiting your own character a little more loosely. It's, you know, you don't take yourself so seriously. It's like, well, I was Juliet all afternoon and I'll be Joan of Arc tomorrow. And, you know, (laughs) and this is Carolyn Gage and she's just one of many, you know? So I think, um, I mean, and they say studies have been done about the effects of sports programs in high schools for team building and self-esteem and blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. Theater rates higher every time over sports. I don't know why sports gets all the freaking funding. Because if if you're talking about building character and skill sets and, you know, it's theater is the, is the golden ticket, not sports. I yep. think sports can be very crushing for a lot of kids. Um, I completely agree. I think that there are, I mean, we could spend hours just talking about this. I think that there are, sports have benefits and that it is a great fit for some kids. Yeah. But I also think that theater has the same benefits and more and is a great fit for an even wider chunk of the population. Yeah. Because it's so varied in the abilities. In sports, you kind of have to have some coordination and speed and strength and you need to be connected to your body. But in theater, you can be missing all of that and still be incredibly successful and learn and get better at all of those other things too, so. Well, and you know what part of it is, is, uh, you know, the, yeah, 
that's what I was going to do for a living. But you know, those poor people who are directing this the theater program in a high school, and they're paid kind of like I think they're paid like coaches or something. That it doesn't take into account they're doing ten times the work. Mm-hmm. You know, the work is just massive. And then of course it's a labor of love. So you're going to be up at midnight gluing, hot gluing the costume. You don't get paid for that. I, you know. And they get, they get people who love theater, so they're basically donating a huge amount of their time, but it's not a professional situation then. You know, it needs to be fully funded with a full recognition. Mm-hmm. I remember that even that in college, you know, like you get in a show and you get some college credit for it. Mm-hmm. Like one college credit for being in a show. I'm like, let me just tally the hours that went yeah. into that. You know, like, yeah. Uh, yeah, so. Yeah, and then compare that to a regular, a regular course, no competition. (laughs) Okay. Plant a seed for us in our hearts, our minds, our spirits. What do you want to start in the people who are listening? Well, I I think it's really important that everybody um, be who they are. And I fought so hard for that because I didn't have my memories until I was 33. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to know who you are and then be who you are. Um, And that to understand that the alternative is really not an alternative. If you're trying to be somebody that you're not, you know, if you're doing something because it's what your family expects of you or whatever, you're not present in your own life. It's not like another way of being. It's a way of not being. You are either being who you are or you're in a state of dissociation. You're not present in your own life. And Charlotte Bronte asks her question, um, how can I live without my life? And that's just a nonsensical question. How can I live without my life? You can't. And yet millions of people are trying to do just that every day when it's just so self-evident. That's a nonsense question. How can I breathe without breathing? How can I live without my life? You can't. And so first get that, really, you can't. You have to be who you are. And the second part is, if you realize that's not supported by your environment, um, because you're uh, in a marginalized personality with regard to the mainstream or mainstream theater or whatever, then um, go and do theater that puts you and your tribe front and center. You can inhabit, you can inhabit a world where your issues, the things that are important to you, your values and your identity are front and center. Mm-hmm. You might have to create it or co-create it with others, mm-hmm. but you can find a way to live that. So all of this is kind of hard. You have to be who you are, but that's not negotiable. Just understand that whatever you think you're doing when you're saying things you don't mean, appearing like somebody you're not, you're not doing shit. You're not being you. You're either being you or you're not. So it's a complete binary. Um, so you have to be who you are. And then, you know, that becomes bearable through theater because you can create that world where you can be visible to yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's terribly important to be visible to yourself. I so that's that. kind of what thank I want to say to people. Thank you for flipping that too, because I think. We, there are a lot of conversations happening about living your authentic life and being your best self and knowing yourself, but we don't often think about how the other side isn't viable. 
it's not it's actually an option it's to nothing. not. It's nothing. Yeah. So yeah. it's sort of like, it's not optional. It's not optional to learn who you are. It's not optional to be authentic. It's literally the only choice. It has to be. Otherwise, I know. Like, you know, people think it's like croquet. It's sort of, it didn't hit the wicket, but it's closer now. And it might get hit by something or you might hit it next. It's no, life is horseshoes. You hit the ringer or it's nothing. It's, it's, you might as well have thrown it over the fence. If it's an inch <laughs> away from it, it doesn't matter. It only counts if you're right on the post. Um, there, it isn't croquet, it's horseshoes. And you're either being you or you're not, or you're nothing. You know, it won't count for anything. I mean, what does it mean to be an incredibly world famous success? We have one in the White House who's completely not present utterly not present, you know, just completely dissociated values. Mm -hmm. Is that success? I mean, what does it mean to be, you're a huge success in failure? Yeah. And if you take that, it, like, a, you know, let's call it like a regular person, someone who's not necessarily world famous, but someone who's living a life that isn't theirs, um, the level of chaos and damage and backwards movement that's happening from the person in the, currently in the White House is just done on a smaller scale, I think, when we are living dissociated from who we are. Which then for me is like extra motivating to really like know myself and live authentically because I don't want to, I don't want to create that chaos. I don't, I mean, chaos, some level of chaos is good and can be artistic, but I don't want to just be a force of um, what sort of like entropy. I don't want to be damaging. I don't want it to be backwards. I don't want to be creating nothing. Um, so it's up to me to make sure that I'm living in, a, in alignment with myself because otherwise I'm just hurting. Well, one of the things that I notice as a writer is like, it's very difficult to operate, uh, you know, out of concepts or ways of framing things if you have no language for it. And in the world of oppression, I mean, there's a lot of words for what happened to lesbians in my generation, <laughs> firing, eviction, threats, harassment, lower pay, um, you know, stress, um, sadness, loss, all these things were very real. And that's why a lot of women stayed in the closet or didn't even let themselves know they were lesbian. And, and I can't really, I mean, I don't know what the words are for that thing when you come home to yourself. Um, there's an exhilaration. There's a, it's, you, you, you go off the battery and into the socket. It's like, there's endless energy now, you know, I didn't have to have the battery. Um, it's, but I don't have language for it. If I did, I think everybody would realize I have to be authentic. This is just, I like the word feral or wild or connected with so many things on the planet. Cause you don't connect well when you're dissociated. Mm -hmm. connect with other dissociated beings, which would explain the Trump cabinet, Ben Carson, you know, people that are not even members of their own tribe, you know, mm -hmm. like what? Um, traitors to their gender, you know, I, anyway. So, um, but I think it's important to look at that that is, um, that there's really um, no language for the overwhelming benefits that come from being authentic. And if it's marginalized, we've got such a huge vocabulary. Oh, but God's sake, if you're lesbian, you're, uh, there's a whole checklist, but 
oh my God, if you come out with your authentic sexual orientation, your sex is going to be wild and juicy. You're going to be energized every morning. Just by, You're going to find your tribe and it's going to be, you know, like, um, there just should be, someone should like have a convention and just draft. <laughs> and create the words. <laughs> You know, and I think there's feelings involved that haven't even been identified. I mean, I'm thinking of like, well, I think it was very radical when Alice Walker said, resistance is the secret of joy. Mm -hmm. And to a certain extent, anytime you become authentic, there you're going to encounter resistance. It's you're going to have to live to a certain degree in resistance to expectations and mainstream and this and that. And that's the that's the juice. That's the joy. It's the secret of joy. So, I mean, I think that we're linguistically controlled. It's part of the colonization of the imagination is um, that we don't have the words that would incentivize us to become authentic. Yeah, I just, we need to see, we just need to see that joy and that you do attract support. I feel like sometimes I just attract support from the molecules in the air for being true to myself. Absolutely. I have little, little guys out in the universe. They, they're kind of like the minions in Despicable Me. <laughs> and when I need something, I literally like, I, well, it's not literally, it's metaphorically. I imagine sort of peeling open my head yes. and like removing the boundary and then just talking to my little universe guys. And then they're like, oh, yay. And they like run off and do things for me. <laughs> That's what it is in my head, which is possibly nuts but that's what happens so I, and i've seen those miracles in theater over and over you're someplace where you know there's no samovar within ten thousand miles but suddenly you're doing checkoff and there was oh you know my next door neighbor just brought a samovar home yes. from the food market yesterday it's like no it happens all the time all the time in theater all the time so beautiful well carolyn gage thank you so much for speaking with me today i have so many things to think about after this conversation. I'm sure that podcast listeners will as well. Um, if someone wants to contact you, produce one of your plays, hire you, or just get to know more about your work, where can they find you? It's um, www.carolyngageallonword.com. Um, and my whole catalog of plays is online and you can also i'm on kindle i've got 75 plays and about 12 books everything i've ever written is on kindle and also lulu so and it's all cataloged on my website so hit me up and i'll be happy to mention this podcast i'll send you a free pdf <laughs> oh amazing okay i want one <laughs> i will take you up on that all right thank you so much carolyn gage for your time and your energy and your thoughts and once again, for the work that you do in the world that you have been doing for decades and that you continue to do even today in semi-retirement. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So that's that. Oh my gosh. Was that incredible or what? Um, if you have information about the Fannie Lou Hamer quote, I was not able to find exactly what quote Carolyn was talking about. If you know the quote, please reach out and let me know so I can add it to the show notes. The gospel quote that she was talking about is from the gospel of Thomas. And that specific quote is, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. Well, that's all for today. 
If you want to chat about what you've heard, learn about upcoming episodes before they drop, or simply say hello, follow Find Your Light Podcast on Twitter and Instagram at FYL Podcast or on Facebook at Find Your Light Podcast. Take a second right now to hit that subscribe button and tell your friends how awesome you think we are so they can subscribe too. If you have it in your heart to also drop us a rating or a review, I would also super appreciate that. We're always hoping to have conversations with folks who have smart thoughts about living an aligned life via theater. People of color and people with disabilities are especially encouraged to reach out. If you or someone you know would make a great guest, email the Find Your Light team, which is currently composed of me and my cat. You can reach both of us at podcast at emilystamets.com. If you want to just send a note to my cat, which is totally valid, you can email Subi, that's S-U-B-Y, at emilystamets.com. You know, that email address is actually a catch-all, so you can email literally anything at emilystamets.com, and it's going to get to me. So, you know, be creative with that. If you'd like to share your thoughts and stories on the podcast in our Voices of the Ensemble segment, leave me a message at 858 333-7713, which does not spell anything. Or you can email an audio file to, you know, anything at emilystamets.com. Until next time, stand confidently center stage and enjoy your show. <laughs>